From Maintain Media, this is Digital Frontiers, a show about the people pioneering the digital economy in Asia. For show notes, visit us at maintainmedia.com. I'm Michael Walters. I'm Andrew Roth. This week we have Steve Goh from MIGME, which is a digital media company that specializes in social media entertainment, including some key products around um, social chat, virtual GIFs, chat rooms. Uh, what do you think about the, the show with Steve? I really enjoyed it, especially uh, given his background in the financial industry. He was able to give a little bit of pointers on how to raise money and how to structure uh, for new budding entrepreneurs. Yeah, Steve has a long history in the ecosystem here, so let's get in the show. Tell us a story about how you got into entrepreneurship. Okay, so I started, my parents were academics. Uh, father was a professor of maths. Uh, mother was a, originally a lecturer in arts, fine arts, uh, painting and sculpture. Um, and then she took a career change when she was in her 30s and went and became a corporate lawyer, which was pretty cool. So um, I grew up, um, um, I think when I was... Um, before I got into primary school, I was doing high school maths, and before I got into high school, I was doing university maths. And then um, 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 started programming when I was seven on Fortran and punched cards. How'd you get your hands on that? Um, um, basically, um, dad dad used to lecture at UWA, and uh, and uh, the, uh, the 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 maths department was basically my my um, sort of babysitting place where. After school, I'd go down there and I'd sit down with uh, all the bunch of the other professors and uh, basically would be off teaching and and that's how I got interested in computing, yeah. yeah. And then you started, you mentioned before you started your first business when you were like 12, 13? Yeah, so um, uh, built my first computer as a hobby with a bunch of other friends when I was about 11 um, and then started importing uh, computers when I was about 12 or 13 years old, um, importing Apple II clones, um, which once again shows my age. <laughs> Um, and then I learned about the services business because there was no money in bringing the computers in, but there was a lot of money to be made by um, after-sales support. So there you go. I, I learned the Kodak model um, when I was a teenager. And then I gave up uh, computing, um, or my interest, my hobby in computing as a teenager was getting in the way of me meeting girls. Um, so I went into finance, I, started, I went and did commerce, and then uh, chartered accounting, and then stockbroking investment banking. So you really got foundation in, in finance in the initial part of your yeah. official career. Yeah, as, as, a, as, a, as a kid growing up uh, with parents as academics, uh, I, I think I had a full university career uh, when I was a teenager. Um, and when I, did, when I was at university, I think if I stayed an extra year and a half or two years, I could have done my honours, had a couple of masters, started a PhD, all those sorts of things. Didn't want to do that at all. Um, 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 went to charter accounting decided I didn't want to be a charter accountant um, uh, after qualifying I sort of burnt my bra mm. uh, made a decision not to do that uh, went into stockbroking um, the um, um, I think um, I've got a strong background in economics uh, business uh, finance international political um, international politics um, economics all that sort of stuff and then um, uh, working in stockbroking um, I, I I remember starting stockbroking thinking wouldn't it be great that after 30 years I might be a director of a stockbroking company, I might be a director of a prestigious firm and, um, and, and I would have this 30 year life and I'd have um, you know, two and a half kids, and a picket fence and all that sort of stuff. And after two years I discovered stockbroking was a stupid business. Mm. I figured I could go and re-engineer and do a much better job. Um, I hadn't written any code since I was, a, since I was at university. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and um, I figured uh, I can go build my own stockbroker. So I went and re-engineered the stockbroking process. If you knew anything about stockbroking in the mid-1990s, it cost $70 to $120 to process a contract note. Hmm. I basically cut it down to under a dollar. And I re-engineered the whole thing and I wrote a, I built Australia's first, first online stockbroking company in 1995-1996. What was it called? It's called Sanford Securities. It was launched a month before Comsec was. And ultimately when it was acquired by another company in 2002-2003, it was the second largest online broker in Australia. It had um, 10 million under, either directly sponsored or nominee with the company. We did business for 60% of the financial planning industry. Uh, we did 122 IPOs in the space of 18 months for other companies. We were the only online broker in the country which did an online book build, so hmm. that gave us a chance. We, we led 16 IPOs ourselves, um, so raised over a billion dollars for other people. Uh, and then, um, what else? I built the online broking business for National Australia Bank, the largest banking bank in the country. That was a joint venture between my company and National Australia Bank. Hmm. Um, I personally wrote about a quarter of a million lines of code, large in C++, lots of Visual Basic, um, Perl, Java, and a whole bunch of other How did you keep up the, you know, one hand in coding and then the other hand in management and sounds like a lot of IPOs and yeah. business activities? So my, um, my uh, CTO, the guys from me are my founding CTO. Um, just as we were incorporating the business, his mother um, was diagnosed with cancer and wasn't able to join, join the company but raised all this money. So we're now at the local bookshop called Boffins. Um, Boffins, I found, just closed last year. I bought $500 of books, and six months later, I'd written about 100,000 lines of code. Uh, this company, Meg, which, which I now run, and now is in Australia, was born in between. Um, and what year? Cause that, cause 2004. 2004, Meg 33 yeah. started. Yeah, well, it was originally X-Text, um, and it was founded on the idea that the next disruption would be in mobile. Um, devices would become smarter, um, internet access, access would become ubiquitous, mm-hmm. um, and the cost of data, it was just easier to do things over data than it was in any, anything that the phone had. So implicitly, uh, the internet on the phone would displace the service stack that you had on the phone, who was for voice calls or applications and the like. We found out that business in 2004, 2003, 2004. Um, the first business, Xtex, uh, didn't work at all. Mm-hmm. Raised half a million dollars in an afternoon. Um, my co-founder and I um, had enough data from that that we launched a second business, which was uh, MIG. MIG. I launched that to the beginning of 2006. So the original numbers were, targets were uh, 5,000, 20,000, 50,000 users. We got to 18,000, 92,000, 186,000 users in the first three months. Hmm. Um, and uh, we were growing, there used to be this company called Nokia. Uh, they used to make phones. I think they've gone back to making boots. <laughs> um, and, they, um, and we were growing on these Nokia phones around the world. And then we had attracted Series A investment from um, Silicon Valley. So we had um, Excel, um, then, Red, then joined by Redpoint. And we had an opportunity to pitch to Kleiners and Sequoia and um, Benchmark and a whole bunch of other firms. What, what point, because that's an interesting topic, what point along your growth with MIG did you decide to raise money in the Valley? Uh, we had a range of options after the first 12 months proving user-based growth and early monetization. How do we capitalize the business and take the business forward? And we could have either listed the company in Australia, we could have listed in Europe, we could have moved the company to Europe, um, or we could have gone to Silicon Valley. And the opportunity to go to Silicon Valley is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Um, and you know, in spite of my background, lived around the world. I've actually lived in California a couple of times before. I was once my parents were academics. 
<coughs> Dad used, used to teach at Berkeley. Um, and um, the, um, here was an opportunity to go and do a, uh, to have a Silicon Valley experience. So, so that was part of it. Sure. And I discovered that Silicon Valley is an amazing place and, and amazing people. And, um, you know, the, the people, the management team that we built at Megan Silicon Valley was possibly the best management team we could build on the planet. You know, I met the guy who... So you raised, you raised your round with some Valley investors. Now you're, you yeah. set up shop there. Yeah. Three months after we moved to Silicon Valley, the iPhone happened. Okay. Um, so... Um, 2007. Um, yeah. So we learned what disruption was like. So on one hand, we were potentially a disruptor because of what was going on in mobile telecoms and messaging. And then on the other hand, we were also being disrupted because the iPhone happened. And then we went through successive disruptions in North America. Mm. It just got to a point where you couldn't financially make it work and the preferences in the register were too big. So what did you do with the company? Do you keep? Do you try and keep the company going or do you shut it down and move on to something else? And, and I, I thought the data was good enough that there was another future company there. Um, and then I packed, we packed our bags up from California and moved to Singapore. We had a large user base in India and Indonesia, still around, um, still around J2Me and feature phones, and the whole world was the ground was shifting towards um, towards um, iPhone with Android rising, and then in emerging markets there was another disruption going on with MediaTek. MediaTek was providing these very, very low, low end, smart enough phones, and that was wiping out what's going on feature phones. So mm-hmm. we had successive disruptions going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so from Australia to Silicon Valley to, to, to Singapore. And what was, when you made the move to Singapore, what was the core product value of MIG at that time? You know, at- It was social networking based around chat um, and feature phones. Um, so we, we know social networking pretty well. And we know what, um, what phones in emerging markets are like pretty well. Uh, and um, in the nine months that we moved from California to here, uh, we slashed the burn rate by about 90%. Um, from about 800,000 a month to about, well, sorry, about 87, just under 90%, um, 800,000 to 100,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, we grew the revenues from 80,000 also a month to 500,000 a month, um, and the margins went from 5% to 75% margins. So we did that in the space of eight months. So That's me micromanaging the business moving from California to Singapore. So everyone's happy. Yeah. What was a company culture like in that kind of growth? Uh, tortured, uh, tortured. Because, because part of it was there was a team in California that didn't want to come Okay. and leaving Silicon Valley is, it, it feels like a loss of a badge I think you know, people would prefer to work in Silicon Valley than Singapore so it felt like for the team that was leaving Silicon Valley to come to Singapore was, a, was an element of defeat mm-hmm. uh, for the team that was being rebuilt in Singapore um, they, I think I seeded it wrong so I hired a lot of people out of a lot of the MNCs here mm. Um, which had an experience working for a Silicon Valley company, albeit a branch office here in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And of course, the culture out here is not the same as back in the head office or whatever. Right. So um, basically, we built um, a team based on, um, I think I built the wrong team here to start with. Yeah. Could you mention in the Valley, you had like the management team of your dreams. Yeah. What were the personality differences between that team and then hiring a team from MNCs in, in Singapore? Uh, um, you can guess all the things, um, and and there's a lot of people working at MNCs here, um, and just because they work at MNC here of an international internet brand, doesn't necessarily mean that they have the spirit or the culture of the company from headquarters. Um, they've they've often inherited all the, the, the um, I suppose they've learned all the wrong work habits. By the time you've 
built an office here, someone has specialized a set of processes where you want to limit innovation around a restricted set of processes out here in the, in the corner of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is, is that Southeast Asia has only recently become interesting again. Um, um, back then, um, you're just the rounding error on everyone's whatever office. And, and as a result of that, you find that people out here, there's greater political behavior, they've got all the wrong. The work processes that they think are best practice, they're actually the best practice work processes for the branch that is in the middle of nowhere that the head offices really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're trying to move that to a um, rebuilt, innovative company now rising again, it's the wrong thing. So one great statistic, um, when we built the original company, um, uh, when, when we left California, we had about a million lines of code in um, in um, CVS, which is our which which is our code, um, um, which is our um, um, which is our code repository. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the team here, with maybe thirty percent improvement in functionality, changed the code base from one million lines of code to nearly five million lines of code. So the very fact that mm-hmm the code bloated by 5x for what was basically a fractional improvement in functionality sort of says something about that fundamentally says a lot now in the last 18-24 months I started reviewing code myself about 24 months ago um, and then as, so, a re- as a refactor project yeah um, so, so we the team moved over here um, and then um, the, the company found failure again here um, and I think Ultimately, I built the wrong team here, and it was personally challenging to be here in Singapore. Um, and like, I found it much, much harder than I expected. Mm. Um, and it had a range of personal challenges, which I won't go into. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, uh, uh, the company nearly went, uh, nearly folded a couple of times here in Singapore. Mm. Uh, made a decision that this won't happen uh, because there's enough still good data inside of the service to actually rebuild the business. So about 24 months ago, we made a decision to go and um, um, you know what would what would the future look like. So, um, uh, rebuild the engineering team. Um, ref- the, the code base has probably been cut down by more than half. Still a little bloated, but uh, by more than half. And the functionality has now found new life. There's new consumer traction, which is fantastic. Uh, the um, uh, the team is now um, rebuilt and re-energized. Uh, we re-secured a new anchor shareholder, which wiped out all my Silicon Valley shareholders, especially Foxconn. Um, as a capital strategy to keep the cost of capital down and keep shareholders happy, we listed the company in Australia. Um, so now the market cap of the company is um, about 200 million. Um, so this is from, you know, we were entertaining recap finance rounds about 24 months ago at around eight, mm. eight million. I personally wrote a check for one and a half million dollars. Mm. So um, the, the company now has um, um, got new life which is great and um, there's there's some fantastic new results which are coming from the company and now it's all about scale now if you doing what you know today what would you recommend to an entrepreneur who's pre-seed round or even pre-A round on on fundraising are there specific VCs you would go to or just focus on convertible notes or do you know venture debt type deals what yeah I would only ever do a venture debt deal if you're about to bridge on a on a if you've got a only for for bridging, uh, I would never never recommend anyone to go into venture debt. Otherwise, because you're, it's extremely dangerous. Um, um, and why is that? Is it just the the interest related to that? The the 
the, the alignment of goals were allowed? No, it's just that um, your ability then to uh, bring the next shareholder on board becomes increasingly difficult. So typically you're using venture debt once you've actually got a sense of what your next shareholder is going to be. And then if you need to bridge yourself between uh, one transaction and the next, then I would use venture debt. I would not advise anyone to use venture debt otherwise. This, the, the, the reason being is that you're... you're the, the, the way venture capital works and convertible note has there's very little difference between convertible notes and venture venture, venture capital mm. fundamentally other than you may have more shadow entrepreneurs behind you in a venture capital having a venture capital firm uh, the problem is that when you when you raise successive rounds each successive round may have uh, differences in preference, preferences and as a result of that um, there's a there's a question mark on seniority of um what the what the next round might be. So, um, when you draw on things like venture debt because of its raw seniority, it makes it very difficult then for either existing shareholders or to bring a new investor behind it. Mm-hmm. So, you want to know that you bring it. You're likely to bring a new investor behind it already. Keep the venture debt really, really small, just to bridge you from one transaction to the other. But I, I would generally try and avoid avoid mm-hmm. it full mm-hmm. stop. Um, with regards to the venture capital market here in Singapore, I think part of the you've got a universe of issues here in Singapore. <coughs> Once there are two things. Um, firstly, um, 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 I think venture capital fundamentally has moved to the right. Why is that the case? Because there's a startup boom out there. The startup boom is, means that there's just simply more startups. That start, the rate at which startups have been created exceeds the rate at which uh, new funds are created to absorb or finance them. Yep. So naturally, you have the selection effect that if you are financing a Series A, you can just pick better startups simply because there's more of them out there. Mm-hmm. You don't need to go and look at more mature startups or less mature ones. You just got more choices. And because you've got more choices, you can you can pick and choose better or more later stage companies. Mm-hmm. It's just simply that's simply mathematically going that's that's mathematically going to happen. Um, so you're saying that there's a, t- a tendency to just stick to later stage growth. Type yeah. funding out here. Well, part of that is because there's just more startups. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine a distribution curve where there's more startups and the, the volume of that curve expands and then funding on the A side of things hasn't fundamentally changed, it will naturally move to the right because if you have a Series A guy, I don't have to go out chasing for more startups. There's just simply going to be more out there right. and I'm going to be able to pick better ones right. simply because that's the economics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the issue here in Singapore is that, that all the economics might make complete sense if there was unemployment or the economy wasn't running at full capacity. Where it's running at full capacity, your issue is that um, when you have more funding for startups, natural ones through government subsidies, whatever it might be, that actually makes it more difficult for Series A's because then now you're sucking and drawing capital or human capital away from later stage companies to earlier stage companies and diminishing the probability of successful later stage companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, start, a round, the A round crunch. Well, actually, it goes two ways. You've got the A one crunch going, going, the A round's going right in one direction, and you've got resources, human capital moving to more junior companies, making it harder for even for companies that are getting into an A round, their ability to hire becomes harder and more expensive mm. and diminishes the probability of the payoff success. So, one way or the other, you know, the, the funding explosion that's happening in Singapore at the moment. One way or the other, it's actually, I don't think it's, in a full environment, full employment environment, I don't think it's fundamentally a good thing. It, you're, it destabilizes the, the economics both ways and it decreases the probability of success and, and good exits. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a structural issue when it comes to, um, 
to um, to Singapore. Having said that, if you look at the region, um, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, all the hinterland countries, uh, the hinterland countries look fantastic because you've got um, rising infrastructure, lowering cost of distribution, uh, the quality of assets on the ground are just getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the rate at which capital is coming into those countries is slow and typically going to the wrong people. So I think the um, um, you know what, what, what appears in the region looks fantastic, but here in Singapore, I think things look very, very hard. So you can become a... If, if you're a savvy entrepreneur, you've got a good vision, a, a good product, initial traction, raising $5 million in Philippines or in Indonesia might be easier... I would say it's, it's easier. The dollars would run much longer. You have the scale of the markets that are there. The likelihood of having a payoff through an exit is much higher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I suspect the, the boom that's going on in Singapore at the moment is it, it smells of a bubble. And, and, and I think that's always been the question for Singapore startups is, great, you have initial traction here. How are you going to grow out of Singapore? Yeah. Right. So that you might get support. Okay, Singapore's a great test market. You've gotten the support of small and large businesses that you can validate certain things about your model and then it's time to hit the gas and leave Singapore and I think that's where companies struggle because yeah. it's not like the states where you can you know expand from California to Washington very quickly yeah. the US has the, the benefit of scale and um, repeatability across the country and yeah Singapore doesn't have that here nor in the region the, the one great example of a fantastic exit here in Singapore would probably be Zopem yeah yeah, I would say that that would be the best example. I think all the other examples are, um, even for ourselves at Meg, um, we've all got Vicky's exit, we've all got Meg's, we've all got IDG's, we've all got a whole host of them. Uh, too many issues, not, rep- not repeatable. Hmm. Uh, but I think uh, Zopens is probably the best example of something that's been A good example of a company that built a good product, had locally. enough value... Yeah. Built it locally, and then a bigger player like Zendesk comes in. And yeah. what did they purchase? Do you remember what they purchased? Uh, I think like the, the, the theoretical guy was somewhere close to 30. 30. Mil. Yeah. Which isn't bad. It's a great efficient use of capital. I think they only raised a few million dollars and mm-hmm. got a $30 million exit. That's actually mm-hmm. a great result. And what's your day to day like now? You have this public company, you've got a path to keep, you know, you've doubled your valuation since you've went public what's the story for you now yeah um, I think um, um, so investor relations will become a part of any um, CEO's job once you've listed a company so there's a, there's a lot of time spent on that um, there's, the, there's the ability and the resourcing and the, the leverage to other relationships which, um, which, which makes some things easier mm-hmm. um, I think for some entrepreneurs it becomes harder um, in my case with a listed company before it's it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I don't, to expect. I don't mean to blow my horn there, mm-hmm. but once again, I've been I've been here before. Yeah. What market excites you the most right now? You're in how many markets? Uh, we have a MIG has a presence across Africa, Middle East, South Asia, um, many countries across um, Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia. Um, if there are three countries that excite us most at the moment, it's the Philippines. So Indonesia first. India, almost an equal first, and um, Philippines is a close second. Philippines, because I've probably been there about 12 times in the last 18 months, and I'm always pleasantly surprised and very encouraged when I go there because of just, I would say, the sense of optimism there, the the contracts and the deals seem to be really on the level. You you know what you're getting, and people... um, 
can close deals faster there, it seems like. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I would recommend anyone who's thinking about doing a consumer-based startup or even a B2B startup is to think about the Philippines. You also have enormous amount of talent there at not the cost that you might have in, in Singapore. Yeah. Also English speaking, which for engineers matters because the, um, when it comes to uh, when the technology stack becomes more complex, uh, most of the tech support blogs are in English. So when you go to other countries where English might not be a first language um, and technically the locals need help, uh, they're, they're just, it's just harder. How are you monetizing MIGME right now? So uh, we, we believe that we, we can create premium experiences um, and those experiences um, lend themselves to monetization. Okay. So how do I create social tension or playful events um, as part of the gaming model? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a solution for MIG. So virtual but currency or an experience in the shape of... Yeah, I would say... Uh, um, um, I, I think I'm, I wouldn't be distracted by the virtual currency side of things. I think there's a... The prepaid is hardly new and there's there's little variations between prepaid. Uh, but to create the demand for prepaid uh, comes uh, the demand for virtual goods and services such as virtual gifts and games or voting or premium interactions or, or playful interactions, whatever that might be. Yeah. yeah. People, everyone plays everywhere. And if you look at, say, Tencent is a great example. Listed in 2004 with a market capitalization of $160 million. Current market capitalization is $140 million, roughly two-thirds the size of Facebook. Mm-hmm. And roughly there's um, $16 billion in revenues, of which um, 80 to 90% of it is all visual gifts and games. Right. It doesn't make the money from advertising. Yeah. And I think the key word is experience there. I mean... I wanted to get your opinion on all this live video streaming stuff with Periscope and Meerkat and if you played around with some of these platforms. Um, live streaming is interesting and now you know there's this whole debate on who's going to win Periscope because Twitter bought them at, you know right around the time South by Southwest launched this year and there are you know some people are in the camp that Meerkat's already dead but the experience of video live streaming is interesting because a lot of people knocking it down. Oh, the people who are doing content on live streaming, it's just kind of nothing. And I had an experience where Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, big social media guy, does a lot of speaking events. He was on a Meerkat, people asking him questions through Twitter. And I posed some kind of question out there. I said, you know, how did, how did you grow your company from 30 people to like 800 million, 800 people in, in two years? And he basically announced, okay, if you email me right now at gary at vayner.media.com or something like that, um, I'll, I'll answer the question right now for 50 bucks. Yeah. Okay. So it started this whole idea of, okay, through social media or creating experiences, whether it's on a platform like yours or a live video streaming platform, it was almost like a social or digital autograph or a handshake where someone that you've been following out there, whether it's a celebrity in the social media sphere like Gary Vaynerchuk or a celebrity in Indonesia, mm-hmm. you could monetize that yeah. experience. I think the um, um, I think the Periscope Meerkat experience is, um, there's a microcosm and tech discussion there, but it's actually a much more mature business model in East Asia. So look at very, the video chat room business around YY and 9158 um, and many others. Um, these are multi-billion dollar companies which are based on on public 
you know, thousands of little micro channels around live streaming video mm-hmm. and interactions and the interaction infrastructure around gifts and games. Mm-hmm. And those, these companies have, you know, Tiander's 800 million market cap and, and um, YY's about $5 million. So it's not a new business model, uh, but it is um, told or implemented in a manner that you would expect Silicon Valley to implement it with Meerkat and Periscope. Mm-hmm. But I don't, think it's, I don't think it's as new as, you know, if you were to read the US tech blogs, you would, would have you believe. I think um, there's a great op-ed written by um, Taylor Swift about eight or nine months ago. She read this commentary that she thought that the music industry now is larger than it's ever been. It's just that the monetization infrastructure hasn't moved with it. Mm-hmm. So she has a sign of autographed in three years, and now she does selfies on Instagram, and pops into pops into people's Instagram accounts and just writes random messages yeah. from Taylor Swift, and yeah. that is extremely successful for her. And she has a better relationship now with her audience than she ever had than you might have had, say, in, in an older, less digitally enabled world. And she's monetizing Never. Well, actually, she's not monetizing Okay. So if you go back 15 years ago, you, the value of a site, autographed, whatever, mm-hmm. is valuable. Mm-hmm. Or you may pay an artist to go and sign a whole bunch of things and they will go and sell that as merchandise goods and the like, which are the signatures. Or suddenly you've got, you're, you're stamping um, an experience on bits of plastic and shipping them. Right. Whereas that, all that is either pirated or moved to digital one way or the other, and the monetization infrastructure hasn't moved with it. Yeah. Um, there's a range of attempts to make money through subscription systems and streaming, but music is more than the music. It's, it's about the creative act and the creative story. Access that. to the artist, yeah. the experience. Yeah, you're in the business of mass. The ultimate is the internet offers mass, a solution of mass intimacy. Mm-hmm. And so how do you create um, premier activities which overcome that? Yeah. We could uh, keep going further than this. We might start a business here. <laughs> um, well, tell tell us how do we find out more about MIGME or, or anything that you're doing out there right now? Uh, Any events coming up? Anything you want? You know? Yeah, I think we're just really, really focused at the moment. We're making okay. lots and lots of progress. And I think later this year you'll hear a lot more about the company. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, We'll, we'll put all this on the show notes and we'll, we'll connect soon. Thanks. Cool. Excellent. Digital Frontiers was produced by Andrew Roth and me, Michael Walters. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, please go to our website at maintainmedia.com and leave a comment in the show notes. If you want to be notified of future episodes, please sign up for the newsletter.